Good morning, fellowship. Everybody glad to be out of the house? Yeah. Take a seat. Hey, my name is Scott Davis, and I'm here with my friend John Wright. We're both community shepherds. Have you never heard what a community shepherd is? There's just a group of men that help with community groups, adult Bible studies, and men's ministry. Mainly, we're here to talk about men's ministry today. So, John, why should men think about getting involved in a Bible study? Well, first, if you know Scott Davis, he's going to do one of two things. He's going to ask you a very direct question, or he's going to invite you to participate in something. So I've known Scott for 15 years. When we first met, he invited me to a men's Bible study. And at the time, my family worshiped here on uh, Sunday mornings, and Karen and I were in a community group, but I'd never participated in men's ministry. And all these years later, after I said yes, I had no idea that it become one of the most important parts of my week even though the men in that group have changed over the years, what we do weekly remains the same. We study God's word. We pray together. We fellowship together. We celebrate the great things God has done, and we support each other through struggles. So the thing that I know about men in general is when things are going great, we tend to want to pat ourselves on the back. When things are not going great, we tend to not want others to know that we're struggling. And isolation is the worst thing we can do. So any opportunity that we have, whether it's one-on-one, whether it's small groups, whether it's Bible studies, whether it's larger gatherings, uh, men's ministry and gathering with other men to follow Christ is just unbelievably, incredibly important. Thank you, John. So all of you men right now are thinking, how can I get involved, right? So we've been starting this, this is the third session throughout the last uh, 18 months. We have uh, on Wednesday mornings an FSM room, which is to my left, 6.30 a.m., uh, with coffee and donuts, we, we're studying First Timothy. So what that looks like for you type A's, you come in and you sit at a table with a bunch of other guys. If you're new to fellowship, it's a great way to connect, right? If you don't know anyone, come and get connected. We, every week, we have a different speaker. So if you don't like this guy, you got another one next week, right? So short sermonette, not long, not like a garland sermon, right? <laughs> short sermonette. And then we have about 30 minutes of table discussion, like a small group. And then many times after the session ends, right, for six, eight weeks, that launches into a men's Bible study. So that's, that's the idea, getting you connected. You may not know this, but all across Fayetteville, on Friday mornings, Thursday mornings, Wednesday mornings, there's Bible studies happening, men's groups happening, that these guys are like a band of brothers battling together. So my call to action would be, Men, step up. Let's, let's get plugged in. Everybody's come back to church. Let's get plugged in. Hey, you may not know this, but Fellowship is a multi-generational church. Allie, come on up with your second generation. Hello. I've got some families coming up here, um, and it may just take a second. I am Allie, and I get to be a part of the Fate Kids Early Childhood team. And like he said, we have a whole nother generation that's going on on this other side of the church. So one way that we love to celebrate with our families, I know, we might need more room. <laughs> one way that we celebrate with our families is through child dedication. 
And what's really cool about this group right here is this is a community group who all had children around the same time and have already been doing life together. And so they chose to lead a um, child dedication together. So back in November, they gathered with their friends, their family, and their community group to lead this dedication. And I got to be a fly on the wall as I watch these families gather and pray scripture over their children. And these parents made the commitment that they were going to raise their, their children to know Jesus and that they were going to raise them to know gospel center truth. So I just wanted to take a moment and introduce you to these families. So we have um, Simon Joel Wright and Louise Wright. The parents are Lawson and Brianna Wright. <laughs> And then we have Ivy McDonald was dedicated. You wave it. <laughs> and then we have Rosie Mae Matthews. <laughs> and we have um, Abel Paul Ripplemeyer. We have Holden and Alder Moore. And we have Olivia Blake Sheffield and Blair Sayla Bernard. And guys, I, we just want to ask that you, the congregation as Jesus followers, that you will make a commitment to partner alongside these families in prayer as they raise up the next generation. So we're just going to take a minute and we're going to pray over these families, if you'll join me. Dear Heavenly Father God, um, Lord, it just brings such hope and encouragement to see these families stepping into a position where they want their families to know and love you. God, we just pray for wisdom and for patience. These parents can embark on a family discipleship journey that can bring challenges and hard times. God, I pray for these kids that they can bring you glory all of the days of their life and that they can know you and that they can love you. In your name, amen. And that was a train of people that had to pass through there. All right, good morning, fellowship. A couple other uh, quick announcements. Um, <clears throat> Loving Choices, if you grabbed a, a, a bottle a few weeks ago for Loving Choices, um, those are due next week, okay? And so Loving Choices is a ministry we partner with, um, and so they, they passed out some baby bottles a few weeks ago, and if you wanna donate and help support that ministry, um, you can put some money in, in those bottles and, and turn them in there in the foyer. They still do have some bottles available if you wanna grab one, but those are due next week will be the last day we take those. Um, and then lastly, <clears throat> in, in a couple of weeks, February 22nd, um, it's Ash Wednesday. And so Ash Wednesday is the day that kicks off the Lent season. And if you remember what Lent is, um, we acknowledge it every year. And it's the 40 days that lead up to Easter. And so Lent, historically for the church, has been a season where we can, we can pray and fast and just reflect on the cross and what the cross means for us as believers. So Ash Wednesday is the kickoff to this season. And so we wanted to have a service this year um, to, to reflect on moving into this time so February 22nd at 7 p.m. in this room here, 
We invite you all to come be a part of that service. And we're just going to spend some time that evening in prayer and reflection. And we're going to sing some songs together. And, and the hope is that this sets us into a really good rhythm um, for our souls leading up through this time of Lent and up to Easter. And so I encourage you to come, come join us that evening um, for the service there. And part of that time will be um, acknowledging our need for a Savior. That we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. And we need Jesus. And so we're going to reflect on that this morning as well. So let's confess together. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserved. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. The church, there's hope for us. For those of us that believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, believe that he and, and he alone is our path to salvation, that he alone is what gives us righteousness, it's nothing on our own, then we have hope. And so church, believe the good news. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him we are a new creation. In him we have forgiveness of sin. In him we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand together and let's continue to worship this morning.
caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young man who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. You can be seated. Thank you, team. My name's Garland. I'm gonna go extra long today. Sermon. Push an hour today just for Scott. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, scoot in. If you've got some room in your row, kind of scoot into the center. If you don't mind, that'll give us some Space, people still trickle it in. Um, a couple announcements uh, as we get going. Uh, the first one's personal. Um, about 10 days ago, my wife and I were sitting on the couch, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it, as we started the new year, I found myself kind of uh, impatient in parenting, and uh, I, I looked at her on the couch. It's like 9 o'clock. I said, babe, I, I really want to get more patient at home. I want to be uh, softer to the kids and speak kinder to the kids, and I want to not lose my temper so, so quickly. I want you to keep me accountable. That was 10 days ago. I did not know that in those 10 days, we were going to get seven snow days, and the Lord was going to basically be like, oh, you wanted to be patient, huh? Let's test that out for you. So I'm kind of redlining as we come in here this morning. I'm glad to be with you. Um, the other two announcements are this. Uh, the first one, one of the things that changed my life uh, when I was a student in this church, more than anything, was uh, participating in a spring break trip with our student ministry. And so if you've got a student in our student ministry, let me suggest to you sending them on uh, a spring break trip. They're coming up. You can hit the QR code, talk to the FSM team. Uh, it enabled me to serve people outside our community uh, just to get eyes for what's going on in the rest of the world. When I was a student, uh, I got to lead a lot of these trips over the years uh, working here. And so they're, they're awesome experiences, and you can get to uh, process that with your kid. The second one is if you are um, 
close to engagement or you're engaged in the room, our eight-week premarital experience, we call it Merge, is coming up. It's a Sunday after the Super Bowl. It's in the student ministry room right through there, seven to nine. It's uh, already shaped up to be the, the biggest merge we've ever had session-wise, so you need to sign up, all right? If you are just kind of barely starting dating, don't worry about having that conversation yet, all right? You can just you can hang out for a little bit more, but if you're close to engagement or engaged, uh, go ahead and sign up. It's an awesome experience. Uh, we're gonna have uh, tables and leaders ready to walk you through that eight-week experience. If you have any questions, come find me, and we can chat about it, uh, and I can let you know any information from there. You ready? Okay. Um, that's not a very affirming yes. Um, if you think about it, for about a 1,000 years in Western culture, and Western culture, I mean uh, Europe and what's become kind of Europe and America, Western culture, for about a thousand years, Christendom was the dominant voice and worldview system in Western culture. And by Christendom, what I mean is the, the, the worldview that came from the scriptures, that there is a, a, a God of creation and that the scriptures are true and that the church has authority. For about a thousand years in Western culture, Christendom reigned. And it was so pervasive that in the Western culture of Europe throughout the Middle Ages, if you would say, are you a Christian, people probably wouldn't necessarily understand that. But if you said, oh, are you Catholic? They go, well, of course, I'm Irish. Well, are, are you Lutheran? Of course, I'm German. That's how steeped in Christendom had become, is that people identified as a subset of Christianity, probably more than they would even identify as a Christian. But in the last couple hundred years or so, Things have changed dramatically. Christendom has given way in Western culture to what I call, it's kind of a spiritualized secularism. It's a humanized sexualism or human, uh, uh, secularism where humanism, personal autonomy, personal freedom, science and technology and the steady march of progress is now the dominant worldview of Western culture. Now, it may not have trickled. There's still places in the world where Christendom still has a lingering shadow, and some of those are down in the south in America, but that shadow is slowly fading. And as the spiritualized secular culture has become the dominant voice in Western culture, I've seen Christians faced with a very interesting question. Here it is. How do, how do Christians respond to that? Like, what's our way forward? What are we supposed to do? How now should we live in a culture that doesn't affirm the same values and doesn't see truth the same way? What do we do in that culture? And I've seen Christians take three kind of primary ways to engage the culture. Here's the, here's the, the ways I see them trying to engage the culture. The first is you can settle into it. Just go along to get along. Just, okay, if that's what they're saying out there, let's just get, keep the peace. They can end up looking very similar to the culture. The second is the opposite. See, Christians running away from the culture, kind of bunkering down, kind of a fortress mentality against everything outside the walls of the church. That's all dangerous and scary. And the third is Christians frequently, they want to war against the culture, fight fire with fire. Now, I'm going to suggest that all three of these are wrong ways. They're erroneous ways. They're not going to be helpful in helping the church both remain pure to the gospel and engage the culture. We need a new way 
And in fact, it's a very old way. And it was what many scholars, sociologists, Christians thinking and writing out there, here's what we're going to call it, the way of faithful presence. That's what we're going to look at this morning. What we're going to see is it's, it's actually a very old way. It's the way that we're going to see embodied in the book of Daniel. Daniel is going to drop us in the middle of a setting of ancient Israelites in exile. Sound familiar? Same thing as Esther. Ancient Israelites in exile, looking around them at a culture that has different gods, different ways of defining truth, different values, different customs, different traditions, and they're dropped in the middle of that culture. They're actually carried into that culture, and we're going to learn some valuable insights as to what it looks like to live and move and breathe in that culture. Welcome to the book of Daniel. It's going to be awesome. Now, we're in a a 12-week series that we're calling Esther and Daniel. We're looking at two pieces of exile literature. We liking it so far, Esther? All right, that's, that's like, like nine of you liked Esther. How about Esther? All right, I mean, it's cool, right? It's a little weird. I mean, I'll be honest. There were times I've been sitting in the room going, why are we reading this like ancient Jewish 2,500-year-old story? But it can be really gripping and really compelling, and it's really insightful for us. Now, as we turn to look now at the book of Daniel, we're gonna spend the next eight weeks in Daniel, my bet is that when the book of Daniel comes to mind, whether you grew up in the church or not, the first thing that I bet most of you think, if I say Daniel, tell me something about Daniel, probably for most of us, we think lions. Almost right off the bat, like I bet most sermon series is in the history of sermon series is where there were projectors, their slide packages had lions somewhere in the slides. That's what most people think they think about Daniel. Now, the second thing, if I was a betting man, the second thing I would bet most of you would think would, if it wasn't lions first, the second thing is probably vegetables. Somehow vegetables made it into the, your subconscious when you think about Daniel. Now, I was not, uh, I was of a generation of veggie tales, but I didn't grow up watching them, and so I don't really get it, okay? Like, I don't really get, I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are supposed to be asparagus or scallions. Is that, what, what are they? Now, you all see how many vegetables I eat, which is not many. That's all I know. Uh, Asparagus, scallions, I don't know what they're supposed to be. Um, but this is what comes to mind, I think, for many of us. Now let's dive in and look at Daniel. If you have your Bibles, open them with me. Daniel is going to be uh, in the section we call the prophets in the way our Bible is organized. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it's in a little bit different place. If you have questions about that, come find me. Um, Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. And let's pick up the story. Here's how it begins. It begins how a lot of the Old Testament begins. And I'll be honest with you, for many of us in the room reading it, it immediately gets confusing and boring to us. It's okay if you have that response. Let me just read one, chapter one, verse one and two. It starts this way. Well, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, who's he? Well, he's the king of Babylon. He came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Welcome to Daniel. There it is. Now, when you read any piece of literature, ancient or modern, it is important, helpful for you to understand what's going on in this piece of literature, what's going on in the background. When you read Jane Austen, it's helpful to know what's going on culturally in her day. We want to do the very same thing when we approach ancient literature like our sacred scriptures 
And what I'm gonna offer for us is we spend about, I don't know, eight minutes and we go classroom style, like introduction to Daniel, classroom style, go a little heady. I heard, bring it from one person, many blank stares, and then somebody in there, I think, said, okay. <laughs> so, okay, let's take a look at it. Let's go classroom style for just a minute here, okay? Now, I, I will give you, we went, about, we went long on sermon notes this week, giving background and intro. Daniel's really complicated, I'll be honest with you. And so if this is the kind of thing that you like, these next eight minutes, check out sermon notes. Uh, if it brings a question to mind for you, email me. Let's go get coffee and talk about it, because Daniel's got a lot of stuff we have to wade through, and we got eight minutes to do it here. Uh, so when we look at Daniel, here's our historical background. Here's what's going on in the story. We did some of the same work with Esther. David, king of the United Empire, 1000 BC, roughly. If you read your Old Testament, what you'll see is the nation of Israel has a civil war, and they have a north and a south, just like we had 150 years ago. They've got a north, and they've got a south. And the northern kingdoms are gonna be marked by rebellion and idolatry. They never seem to trust Yahweh, the leadership in the north. And because of that, they will be carried into exile at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, it's called Judah, it does a little bit better. So it's a little bit longer, a little run there, but about 150, 140 years later, we're gonna see that because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion, they too will be carried off into exile, this time at the hand of the Babylonians. And Daniel's story is gonna intersect with that Babylonian invasion and that Babylonian captivity. You can see that there on the screen. For you and I to see, Babylon is the big kid on the block in this part of the world at the time. They conquer the Assyrians. They will be conquered by the Persians, the same group that we looked at during our study of Esther. They're the big kids on the block at this time. You can see their empire was massive and vast. And one of the strategies that the Babylonians employed was this. It's a little bit different than what the Assyrians would do. The Assyrians were bloodthirsty and ruthless. Babylonians, pretty bad too. But the first thing they would do is this. As they come into a city that they want to besiege, they'll kidnap some of the best of the brightest of that city and they'll ship them off to their headquarters in Babylonia. And what their goal is, they, kind of, they put them in a multi-year government program to, to soften them up, to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. Get them used to our stuff. Have them understand what we're all about. Then when we bring the rest of our people into exile, they can look and go, look, it's not that bad. We've learned their culture. We'll get them to settle in. That's what's going on in Daniel 1, 3, and 4. You can see that on the page. The royal family and nobility, some of them are carried into exile. What's the point? This last part of verse 4. They were to be taught the language and literature, the culture of the Babylonians. Get them used to it. Then what we're going to see is a few, years, a few decades later, the Babylonians come in, and this is a dark day in your Old Testament, okay? 586, if there's any dates you remember from your Old Testament, 586 would be one of them. This is the day when the temple, the city, Jerusalem, is destroyed and Judah is carried into exile in 586 BC. It is a dark day in Israel's history. Now we've got our historical background and what we're told from other prophets is this dark day of Israel's exile, this dark day, it's not gonna last forever. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah had reflected on the exile. He's a contemporary of Daniel, and he says, you know, this is what Yahweh says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'm not giving up on you. I'm gonna come back, and I'm gonna bring you back 
to this place. We're actually going to see Daniel interact with this very promise in Daniel 9. We're going to get some good news. We're going to get some, some bad news. This, is, this promise is going to have a twist to it in Daniel chapter 9. That's our historical background. Now, what about our characters? Who are our main characters? Well, we're going to see some of them introduced at the beginning right here. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, all of them are going to be given different names. They're going to be given names of their captors. By the way, as a pause, how crushing, how crushing to be taken away from your homeland and have different names imposed on you of your captors. It's identity crushing. It is done on purpose. For some reason with Daniel, however, we remember him by his Hebrew name. With the other three, we remember them, I don't know why we did this, but we remember them largely from their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've got our historical background. We've got our characters. Now, what are some of the features of this book? We've got to fly here, all right? We could spend an hour just on this. Literary features. It's really complicated. The book of Daniel, man, it's hard to wade through. It's hard to get your arms around. Let me get to in a nutshell. The first feature is this. There are multiple genres in the book of Daniel. The first half of the book are going to be court tales. They come across as stories. It's going to sound a lot like Esther, filled with dramatic reversal and irony and all sorts of fun stuff. The second half, though, it shifts and it becomes a very different thing you're reading. It's a different genre entirely. It's what scholars refer to as apocalyptic literature. It's a series of visions. Now, when I say apocalypse or apocalyptic literature, some of you get excited, like, oh, yeah, finally. But most of you are like, I don't know what that is. Um, when we think about apocalypse or apocalyptic literature, I think for most of us, what, we, what comes to mind for apocalypse is something like the end of the world. The, the space-time continuum blows up and everything goes, uh, falls apart. Now, we are obsessed with apocalypses as a culture. We're obsessed with that kind of a story. I looked it up, at least according to Reddit. They say that New York City has been destroyed 69 times in movies. We're obsessed with destroying New York City. It's been destroyed by by asteroids and floods, and my favorite is the day after tomorrow when somehow a, a speeding freeze destroys New York, and that's supposed to be really scary. Uh, but we've destroyed New York over and over and over and over again. Now, when we think of the word apocalypse, for many of us, I think we think the end of the world. But that's not what ancient Jewish apocalyptic literature is trying to do. So what is it? Help us out here. I've I just carved over this definition to give this to you, and I recognize that most of you, you don't really care, but let me give it to you anyway. What is apocalyptic literature? It's a genre of literature. By the way, it was really popular in Jewish circles from the time of the exile, even through the time of Jesus, and it's marked by some characteristics. I was trying to condense here. Here's those character, here are those characteristics. Apocalyptic literature uses symbolic visions communicated through a heavenly messenger. We'll see this in Daniel. And here's the big why. Here's what it does. Apocalyptic literature teaches a heavenly perspective, God's perspective on real-world events. When you find yourself experiencing tragedy in the world, what's God's perspective on it? And apocalyptic literature gives us that perspective. That's its point. That's what it frequently is doing. Now, there's lots of apocalyptic literature I was unfortunate enough to have to read all of it for a class. 
And some of it you might have heard of. Some of it's really, really famous, like First Enoch. It's gonna be quoted in your New Testament. Go check out the book of Jude. It actually quotes from First Enoch. There's some other ones you can see on the screen. Maybe the most famous one for church folk is the book of Revelation in the New Testament. The last book in your Bible is a piece of apocalyptic literature. Um, as we look at the literary features of the book of Daniel, it also is told in multiple languages. And on sermon notes, we kind of waded into maybe why that could be. And as a result, it's really, really, really structured. I mean, this book is highly structured, but there's debate as to how it's being structured. Like Esther, it's filled with dramatic reversals and irony and comic devices like a fiery furnace meant to kill God's people actually incinerates the people trying to throw them in it, stuff like that. Just like Haman being impaled on the pole he had destined for Mordecai. Um, don't freak out. In the non-Protestant tradition, so fellowship's a Protestant church, in the non-Protestant tradition, there's some additional stories in the book of Daniel. One of them has an awesome name, Bell and the Dragon. It's pretty cool. Um, so it's just additional material. If you come from a non-Protestant background, your Bible's gonna maybe reflect that. And if you're from the Protestant background, maybe go check out one of those stories. Uh, it's, it's just interesting. Uh, we might say, lastly, it was influential, highly influential for Jesus and the New Testament church. Daniel's gonna give a set of expectations that it seems like Jesus imagines himself embodying and walking in. And we're gonna unearth that as we go. Now, in every piece of literature, it's always important to ask who wrote it, when, and where. And here's what we could say. Some of Daniel's written in the first person, as Daniel, I statements. Some of it's written in the third person, he did this, he did that. And what we might say is it's probably collected from sources over time, sometime very recently after the Babylonian exile, maybe some later. That's the most we could say about authorship of the book of Daniel. Now, Whenever we talk about any kind of piece of literature, especially the Bible, the why of the thing, the purpose is really significant. And then we're going to pause and we're going to sing, all right? So it's almost over. The purpose is really significant. This is my working purpose statement for the book of Daniel. So, so write it down. Commit it to memory. Why is Daniel here? Why read it? What does it teach us? Here's, here's in a nutshell. It reminds the reader Though kingdoms rage, empires rage, and God's people get caught in the fire, literally in Daniel, thrown in the furnace. This is why it's important for us even today. God is in control and will establish his kingdom. So trust and obey him with courage and conviction, just like Esther. When it looks like all the kingdoms of the earth are winning and amassing power, and it looks kind of out of control. No, no, no. Yahweh is in control. And he is working to establish his kingdom in this world, a kingdom of justice and beauty and goodness. So what's the response of the Yahweh man or woman? Trust him and obey him with courage and conviction because he's faithful to bring about his promises. Now, in light of that, here's what I wanted to do this morning. I could go in to give us Daniel chapter one, but we're not ready. We need to sing. So would you stand with me? Let's just sing about God's faithfulness for a moment. Then we'll dive into chapter one. Let's sing together, shall we?
promises, and we can trust that even as we learn through the Old Testament. Help us to be reminded that strength for today, right hope for tomorrow, instead of your word. We ask this in your name as our King. Amen. All right, grab a seat. Intro behind us. Needed to sing, feeling good. Um, let's dive into chapter one. I suggested at the beginning that Christendom has given way to a spiritualized secularism in Western culture. And the genie's not going back in the bottle, all right? So I think, that's, I think everybody would affirm that. The question then becomes, and I suggested three ways that the Christian culture has engaged with the secularizing culture around us. And I'm calling these missteps, okay? I think these are wrong-headed. One is we, we settle in, look like the culture, just assimilate into it. The second is we run away from it in fear, almost turn a blind eye to it. And the third is we can fight back, fight fire with fire, war against it. If these are the three wrong ways that we see the church engaging culture, then, then what's, the, what's, what's the way? Like, what's the right way to do it? What is the way of faithful presence? Now, just indulge me here. Star Wars fans in the room? I mean, thank you. <laughs> Y'all like Star Wars more than Esther, apparently. Um, as I was thinking this week about all this, the way, the way, the way, the way. I mean, come on. I had to go here with you. Now, if you're not a Star Wars fan, you need to lean in. You need to watch Mandalorian. And they have a saying, the Mandalorian looks at others of his kind. They just nod and say, this is the way. Now, I'm going to out myself as a major dork here, but that's not that surprising for some of you. Um, how cool would it be if as we finish the series of Daniel, and this summer we're going to look at 1 Peter, another exile, uh, it's an le exile letter, but this time in the New Testament. How cool would it be as if we saw each other at Farmer's Market, the tailgate, the pickup line, Walmart, the ball fields, you just looked at other people in this room, and you looked and nodded, this is the way. This is the way. And we all knew what that meant. How cool would that be? All right. Um, thank you for indulging me. What, what is the way? What we're going to see in the story is this. The king wants to butter them up. He's inviting them in to experience the best of a Babylonian culture. So he assigns them food and wine from the king's table and look how good you have it here in Babylon. Give them, give them some time. Give them three years even. They'll fall right in line. That's the, that's the goal. Now, let's see. I'm going to give you three components of the way. Okay? The first one we'll see coming onto the page here. It says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself, though, with the royal food and wine. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Why? But notice, it says he resolves not to defile himself. But notice his posture. He doesn't go in there demanding. He's not angry about it. It says, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Watch his posture throughout. Later on in the story, he's brought before the king, and as he's talking with the king, the king's like, man, there ain't none equal to this dude. Nobody's as smart as this guy. Nobody has better insight or wisdom into how we should do things around here. And notice what it says at the end of verse 19. 
So Daniel and his friends, they entered the king's service. They're willing to serve this pagan, ruthless man. They don't go, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, we don't agree with anything you stand for. Therefore, we can't even talk to you. No, the king's so impressed with them as the story continues. It says the king goes, man, these guys are 10 times better than everybody else I got. I mean, when I look around my cabinet members, they're all idiots compared to these guys. Think of it. That takes an awful lot of humility and deference for a Jew in exile, kidnapped from his homeland to go, but I'll serve you. I'll advise you. Later on in the story, we're going to see in chapter two, uh, the king is going to put before his best and his brightest, kind of his court, some, it's going to be a problem they can't solve. And when they can't solve it, he's like, all right, kill them all. And you know what Daniel does? If I'm Daniel, I'm going, kill him. Yeah, please, take him out. So Daniel comes running into the scene. He goes, whoa, 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 don't execute him. Take me to the king. I can solve the problem. I will interpret this for them. Don't kill him. And by the end of chapter two, where you see Daniel elevated to a high position along with his three friends, the first component of the way of faithful presence is that Daniel and his friends, they seek practically the good of the culture. They serve even the pagan Babylonian culture. That's our first component. What's the second component of the way? This is the way. This is the way. Second component is this. But Daniel resolved. The NIV is doing a little bit of work for us here. Literally what it says in Hebrew is, it was placed on the heart of Daniel. But the NIV is making it an active verb, and it's really a passive verb. Something's been placed on the heart of Daniel. A a loyalty to Yahweh. A a knowledge. I know who I belong to, and I know what that that entails. And I will not yield. He resolves not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, scholars debate the why of it, okay? One option is this. It comes down to two options, really. One option is this. Jews have all sorts of dietary restrictions, both then and now, that come from the book of Leviticus and the Torah. We call it the kosher diet. And so one theory is that they, they, he resolves not to eat it because it doesn't comport to kosher dietary restrictions, okay? And other scholars suggest that uh, in the ancient world, um, a lot of the meat that was, that was eaten was sacrificed at a temple before the, beforehand. There were temples everywhere, and you're making sacrifice to appease the gods of those temples. That meat gets sold at the market, taken to the king, given to the priest, given to the poor. And so Daniel refuses to eat it because he knows it was sacrificed to one of the Babylonian gods. Either way, he goes, I will not. I res- he, was, he was resolved in his heart. I know who I am. I know who I belong to, and I refuse to adopt those practices and yield mine. And just a few verses later, he's going to say, hey, test us. Just give us vegetables and water and test us. See how things go. Now, this is a risk. The king could be really, really frustrated with them. He could be insulted. They won't eat my food. But instead, he says, test us. Put us at the test. That takes an amazing amount of courage. One of the most famous stories in Daniel is a story in chapter 3, and we see that on display there. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, builds a statue himself. Bow down to the statue. And then the word begins to trickle into his cabinet members. You know those Jews that we brought from Judah? 
Man, they don't even listen to you. In fact, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Can you believe it? The second component of the way is they courageously resist the idols of culture. Practically seeking the good of the city, but courageously resisting the idols and the values and the way of defining truth of the culture. Start to see it? Now the third one, what's the third component of the way? This is the way. Look at verse nine. In Esther, God's work is always opaque. It's never clear. God's never mentioned working in Esther, but in Daniel, it's everywhere. I mean, God's all over the place doing stuff in the book of Daniel. It says God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. God did it. God's at work causing this. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better. Now, we might look at that and go, oh, yeah, they ate, they ate like organic for 10 days. Of course, they drank water and not wine. Of course, they looked better. Now, I think the ancient reader sees this and goes, this is, this is Yahweh at work preserving their health so they look uh, better than it, all the ones eating all the, the, the good food. And what we're going to see is this, as the story develops, Yahweh at work all over the place and the, the people in the story having to trust that. Look at what we see in chapter three. It's one of the most famous parts of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are hauled before the king, threatened to go into the fiery furnace. Look at their response. They say, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If you're we're thrown into the blazing fire, our God is able to rescue us. And even if he does not, we won't bow down to your idols. Grit. Isn't that awesome? The courage in that. But look at the trust that is on display. It's our third component. Humbly trust that Yahweh is king of culture. The three components of the way practically seek the good of the city. Courageously resist the idols of the city. Humbly trust that Yahweh is king of the city. This shouldn't be surprising. We saw this very same thing from Jeremiah. Like I said, a contemporary of Daniel, as they go into exile, he says, hey, exiles, can I tell you what's up? Let me tell you how you should live when you go into exile. We read about it in Jeremiah 29, and look at what he says. We're gonna see these components on display. He says, when you go into exile, verse five, build houses there, settle down, Plant gardens, eat what they produce, like have families and, and show the culture what true beauty and family looks like. Look at verse seven. Seek the peace and prosperity of that city. Pray for it, even that pagan city. But hey, don't be fooled by the liars or the prophets among you that say, go along to get along. No, no, you must resist. But then lastly, trust me, I know the plans I have for you, declares it's not a coffee cup in some of your houses, isn't it? 29-11, or it's, usually it's on uh, like a poster in the powder room, something like that. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, trust me. See the same thing in the New Testament. Peter will urge these Jesus followers scattered in the Roman Empire now. He'll say, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, courageously resist. But then live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day he visits us. It's the way. The way of faithful, loyal to Yahweh, but presence in culture. Here's the thing. We don't live in Babylon, do we? 
We don't live in ancient Babylon. We haven't been taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. Daniel's going to teach us the way of faithful presence. What does it look like for you and I to embody this in the city or the empire we live in today? What does it look like to embody the way here in our culture? Practically, for you and for me. Let's get real, let's get real practical here. This has been, I've been feeling really convicted over this these last week or two as I've been working on this. Which of these three is descriptive of you and your posture to the culture? Have you settled in? If we looked at your life or my life, what you value, what you spend your time on, your thoughts on, your money on, how we raise our families, could you tell any difference between those of us that are following Jesus and everybody else around? I'll I'll, I'll tell you where the the spirit, I think, has been convicting me these last couple weeks. The way that we have, I'll say this way, the stuff that my kids have access to just the stuff, the material stuff. As I've been working on this, I've been looking and going, I don't think you could tell my house versus anybody else's house on how we interact with the materialism of the American culture around us. It's got me nervous. And it's been messing with me this last week. It's an idol, comfort and security and stuff. You settled in? Or maybe... Are you, have you run away, hunkered down with other Christians, just blind eyes to everything going on in culture? Because to hell with them, we got our thing. Try to stay as safe as possible. Have you, have you run away? Or maybe third, you're just mad. You're wanting a war against. Can I, can I just be really honest? I think our culture's being overly critical and unfair of Christians right now, okay? I'm sure you feel, some of you feel that. Responding unfairly and overly critical is not an appropriate response. We don't fight fire with fire. Do you see the hopelessness and fear and despair that that, that, that shows in us? And I don't see that in Jesus, and I don't see it in Paul. And I don't see it in the first century church. And they're living in Rome. These are the three wrong ways. What does it look like to embody the way in every single sphere of life? I'm going to give you a challenge this week. Jesus followers in the room only, okay? Draw, just get a piece of paper out and draw all these four circles. And at the top, write the way in the three components. And just practically think, what does it look like to embody that in these different spheres? That'd make a fun community group, make a fun men's ministry discussion, women's ministry, dinner table conversation. It might transform how you see your work. How do I bring what Steve Graves calls a redemptive edge to my work? What another practitioner calls it the creational good. Work was something that God had brought before sin into the equation that we might bring flourishing and blessing to the world with our hands, with what we do. How can I connect what I do Monday through Friday with something that is, has a creational good to it? That's a, that's, a, that's a hard question to ask. I get it. But have, can you connect your workplace? Most of us spend way more time out there than we do in this room. How do I connect my workplace 
to that. A creational good. It, it, it may be difficult. Get some other people that are in your industry together and have that conversation. What, is it, what would it look like if we embodied the way in our politics, in our hobbies? This is the way. How might Northwest Arkansas, how might Fayetteville be different? Look, at, look around this room. By the way, 1030 is even fuller. If just fellowship, let alone the other churches, the Jesus followers said, we're going to embody the way. We can see each other in public and do it. How do we do it? Do you notice that when we were in exile, spiritually speaking, broken because of sin, Jesus pressed in. He ran for us, not away. He called a different kind of kingdom against the kingdoms of this world, a kingdom where the king came not to be served, but to serve and give his life. He's the new kind of king that we need. It's the kind of king that our world desperately craves. It's the king that we worship. It's the king that we follow in the way of faithful presence. He changes lives, changes lives then, he changes lives now. We're going to see it in Daniel. Welcome to the book of Daniel. Let's pray. Father, it's our prayer over these next few weeks that you would enable us to see what it looks like to courageously follow you in a culture that, yeah, doesn't get it. And we thank you that you are at work to change hearts and lives. And sometimes when we can't see it, sometimes when we feel alone in it, sometimes when we feel scared in it, remind us even right now as we sing these words that That's who you are, faithful, life changer, life giver. We want to follow you courageously with all that we have because you are worth it. We pray this in your name, Jesus is our King. Amen. Would y'all stand? Let's sing.
Great week of worship, everyone. We'll see you next week.